This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues from the perspective of the principles of the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Mary Kay Radpour, a Baha'i from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who is a licensed clinical social worker. In addition to her private practice, she is one of the founders of the Authenticity Project, which she describes in the interview. I began the interview by asking Mary Kay where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Chicago, and I grew up in uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Uh, That's a little kind of town... With uh, surrounded by farmers, with an academic community in the middle, so it's a very interesting opportunity to get a kind of conservative farmer's point of view and a liberal, over-the-top, academic uh, kind of world. And that was that was the world I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my uh, grandfather was a farmer in Mansfield, Illinois, and. my mother worked at the university. She had a, after her divorce, she took a job as secretary to the chairman of the Department of Psychology. It was kind of an interesting job because um, he's actually famous. His name is O. Hobart Maurer. He's famous for his work in learning theory. <clears throat> but Dr. Maurer had a midlife crisis in which he attempted suicide on his way to accept the presidency of the American Psychiatric Association. And uh, he, he then started some therapy groups, and he didn't know how to do it, but my mother did. So um, he, he kind of created this movement in psychotherapy, and my mom was his right-hand person. This was after the incident? Of- mm-hmm. And actually, that's how I became what I do for a living, because um, when I was 13 or 14, I found a copy of Freud's work on dreams at my grandmother's house, and I read it during a summer vacation. And it just tickled my... I mean, I thought, this is a... This is a level of knowing about people that I really want to know. Mm-hmm. And then my mother asked Dr. Maurer, you know, if if he had any advice about somebody who wanted to be a psychologist. And he said, well, why don't you let her come to one of my groups? So at 15, I sat in on one of his therapy groups. And when I came home, I said, oh, my God, that that's what I always knew was happening. But I just at the level of intuition, not at the level of experience. So... Wow. That sort of marched me down that road. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you live in that area? Uh, I was there until I married when mm. I was 22. Mm. And uh, 
Then my husband and I stayed there for another year while I went to graduate school. Actually, it's a little interesting. When I applied to go to graduate school in psychology, it was just before women's lib. And uh, I was told I wouldn't be admitted because I was a woman. No way. And so I thought, well, what can I do? So I went to graduate school in the teaching of English. And... uh, Within five years, every university in the country was desperate for female faculty, and so the you know the spirit of it changed. And then, but in the meantime, I had married and had children, and it wasn't until the the older ones were in primary school that I went back to school and I did a master's degree in social work. Mm. Now, at what point did you run into the Baha'i faith? You know, my mother had learned about the faith when she was eighteen years old. She had. As she told it, she was standing on someone's porch in Urbana, Illinois, and they said that there was a religion that believed that all of the world's religions came from the same divine source. And she said she thought to herself, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) And she then, she didn't know anymore. She knew that there were two girls at the University of Illinois who were Baha'is, Margaret Rue and her sister, Anna Marie Honnold. Uh, but she didn't know more about the faith. Um, I think uh, some years later she told that she went to a, a dance. Mm. And she danced with a Baha'i the whole night. And she said she remembered every word he said, but she never saw him again. Because it was in Wisconsin and she would, wasn't from there. And then when I was about seven or eight, she, went, she joined a social sorority. And uh, they had invited a Baha'i speaker by the name of Flora Hadis to come and talk about the true meaning of the resurrection of Christ. Mm. And the next Sunday, my mother was at the Baha'i Center. And so, you know, from the time I was seven, I was associated with the faith. But mm-hmm. she took her time. She, she felt some... Um, pressure from her mother who who was anxious and nervous about this what she thought was not a christian approach and so it wasn't really until she sort of settled that about how she was going to reassure her mother <clears throat> that my mother became a bahai and that was when i was 13 mm. and 13 year old girls are not famous for wanting to do <laughs> anything that their mothers do But my mother was very wise. She actually said that I didn't need to have her religion, but that I needed to have a religion. She told me that um, if you want to be a good person, you need the support of a community of people who will help you be that. Mm. And so she said, if, you know, go look. So I kind of made this really methodical you know, I went to everywhere. I went to Catholic youth group. I went to the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Christian scientists and the Unitarians. And I even went to a spiritualist meeting with the mother of one of my friends. And um, I, w- I was sort of like a plant in the youth meetings because I would raise my hand and ask the pastor who was always invited to talk to the youth uh, what he knew about the Baha'i faith. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, many times the response was ignorant and uninformed. And when you're 13 or 14 and you hear an adult sounding like, 
you know that they don't know what they're talking about. It was really quite disillusioning. So really, uh, when by the time I went to the University of Illinois, I had begun to realize that there was no way that I could be respectful of all the religious traditions I had encountered without being a Baha'i. And I was 17 when I decided to enroll as mm. a member of the Baha'i community. And you were at university at that time? I was. I had just started. I left high school a little bit early and went on to university. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a very exciting time to be at university. I don't, you know, that was kind of intellectual ferment in 1960. Sputnik had gone into orbit. Americans were fearful that the Russians were going to defeat us intellectually. It was the time of sort of throwing out religion. So if you were a person who'd made a commitment to religion, you really had to be prepared to defend it. And I remember even freshman rhetoric. Mm. I had you know, teachers who said, if you're a religious person, you've got to justify why. So I didn't have a moment to just relax. I had to sort of be on my toes to explain my own faith and... Um, you know, why I had made the commitments I made. And it was really a wonderful time. Mm. You said you went on to graduate school? I did. I, I did an undergraduate degree in English and psychology, and then I went on to, to a teaching English degree before I went back to school and got a social work degree. Mm -hmm. And you got the graduate English degree in the same university? or did At you? University of Illinois, okay. I went to the graduate program. And then how about your... That was after we moved to Tennessee. Oh, okay. I actually started in Maryland. That was okay. when I met you. Right, right. I was, my children were, you know, just beginning to go to elementary school, and I started to the University of Maryland. Mm. And I think I only did either a semester or two, and then my husband got a job in Tennessee, and I transferred to the University of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was just coincidental that there was a, a program with, they were trying to accommodate um, Chattanooga social workers who wanted a graduate degree. So there was a, they organized all the classes in Knoxville so that you only had to go one day a week to Knoxville and start at eight in the morning and take class all the way through in the evening. Mm, right. So it was useful. Mm -hmm. And you've been in Chattanooga ever since. We have, yeah. yes. That's yeah. home. So you're now a, what is your occupation now that you're... I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. I have a private practice. I've been in the same group with a couple of psychologists, and a, we actually even added a massage therapist a couple of years ago. There's another clinical social worker and myself, mm -hmm. and I've been there for about, since 1981. Mm -hmm. I... Um, it's kind of interesting how you develop some sort of clinical specialties. I don't, you know, I, you set out to study something, but really what you become expert in is what walks in the door. And uh, <clears throat> when I started, I think, I think almost the very, some of the very first people I saw were uh, abuse survivors, incest survivors. Mm-hmm. I want to get into your work with the... The Authenticity yes, Project? The authentic, can yes, the Authenticity Yeah. explain the Authenticity Project for, for me? It's you know, origin... It's been about seven or eight years ago. Well, I should even go back further. When okay. I was very, probably in college, or 
I read um, an essay written by William Hatcher called The Science of Religion Mm -hmm. and another one called The Nature of Spirituality. And when I read those two monographs, I thought, this man really has the lucidity about this subject that I... it just appealed to me enormously. Mm-hmm. But I never got a chance to know him personally. And then uh, he wrote a book called Love, Power, and Justice. And of course, because I was interested in his early writing, I immediately got the book and read it. And mm-hmm. when I was done reading it, I thought, this was absolutely a fabulous book. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty was that it was very abstract and philosophical. And um, so I had it in my head then that there should be some way of using that material practically. I asked, uh, I had been invited by a, I think it was the National Baha'i Committee on the Equality of Women and Men, invited a number of mental health professionals to attend a conference on domestic violence. And I suggested that they invite Bill Hatcher to speak. And they did, and he came. And that was an opportunity then. We became friends, and we began to talk. And I said, Bill, I said, nobody. (laughs) I said, the philosophers are going to read your book. But that book is incredibly useful. What he had done, basically, was take... um, the ethical principles in the Baha'i Revelation and articulate them in language that was universal. And um, in fact, he had actually done the original work prior to the publication of that book when he was residing in the Soviet Union. Mm. And at that time, you couldn't really talk about religion in the Soviet Union. It was hostile to religion. So Bill actually wrote these core ethical principles without reference to religion at all. Uh, And they were extremely well received in the Soviet Union Mm. and then later in what was Russia. And um, so I, I saw that he had kind of, you know, moral dilemmas and questions that I had in my own mind. He had provided a kind of framework for decision making. It was almost Mm. like a a decision tree. Mm -hmm. And I said that would be so practical for people who are struggling with what is, for example, he had a whole discussion on what is the proper response to injustice. Mm. And if ever there's a question that um, comes across your, you know, when you're doing psychotherapy, most of the, oppression produces dysfunction in in mental illness. So you're going to hear about injustice all the time. So I was very taken with his ideas, and I said we need to make a kind of workbook or an institute process that people could utilize these ideas. So he was very enthusiastic, and we brought together, I think it was about six people. His daughter was also a clinical uh, psychologist, uh, he brought Lonya Osokan, who was a youth from the Soviet Union who had been involved in his original publication of material. And um, anyway, kind of a little group of people kind of coalesced. And mm-hmm. it was a fascinating experience because there were two philosophers, both men, mm-hmm. 
and three clinicians, all women. Mm. And those people who knew Bill Hatcher knew he probably had one of the most incisive intellects ever. I mean, you he didn't tolerate sloppy thinking. Mm. And um, not because he was intolerant, just because he was so brilliant and he he encouraged everyone to kind of build on logic to a, a healthy outcome. So mm. <clears throat> it was fascinating to have, first, first of all, women, myself included, have often experienced themselves as sort of voiceless in the presence of overtowering inter- intellects. Right. And that dynamic had to be overcome before we could really become true collaborators. And I, I really remember the moment. Um, we, were, we were talking about transformation and how, how change occurs. And neither of these men had any clinical experience. And, uh, and we said, one of them had written something, and we said, it really, that, it doesn't, change doesn't occur that way. It, ter- it occurs in a different way. And mm-hmm. uh, Lonia said, I don't know what you mean. And uh, <laughs> another Baha'i uh, clinician, and she said, Mary Kay, let's show them. And I said, all right, which one of us is the patient? Which one of us is the therapist? And she said, I'll be the patient, you be the therapist. And uh, so she just tapped into some existing problem, and we mm-hmm. talked for probably 10 minutes, and she made a real shift in that 10 minutes, and Lonya stopped us, and he said, wait, 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 wait a minute, I don't know what just happened. I've got to know what just happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, this is exactly, he got it, you see, that we were talking about true transformative processes. Well, that was a wonderful moment because then we began to really think about that that transformation was not just a cognitive or rational process, mm-hmm. that there were, uh, that emotions were involved, the exploration or reflection upon one's intentions were involved, and... Uh, we began really kind of getting that down on paper, and then we basically set out to uh, to conceptualize it. And then when we were kind of done with that process, which took about a year and a half or two years, mm-hmm. then I wrote the book that articulated those ideas, and mm-hmm. we began doing these seminars, which people have found extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. And are you at where you want this project to be, or do you have future plans for the Yes, I'm sure project? that actually uh, Michael Penn and I leave a week from now to go to Turkey to present at the uh, World Psychiatric Association Congress uh, a workshop on the dynamics of authentic relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it will be an interesting opportunity to find out mm-hmm. how professional psychotherapists feel about this approach. Mm-hmm. We know that in the Baha'i community, the people have been very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be an interesting, uh, right. different audience. Mm-hmm. And Michael is writing about it as well as I am, so they, I'm sure we will 
there will be publications that everyone will see. Is there any way you can give us an idea of what Mm -hmm. the authenticity, the the content of the project is? Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple of core ideas. One Mm -hmm. is that in a materialistic society, people believe that their value must be earned. That material, they, they don't really see the value of human beings from their birth as existing in their capacity to be generous, um, loving, truthful, trustworthy, these spiritual qualities that we feel are so critical. In the culture at large, your value is determined by your wealth, your beauty, your um, power, perhaps by some exceptional skill you have as an athlete or a intellect or or something and so there's a common cultural belief that you must somehow compete with others to earn the acknowledgement that you have value and we believe that all of the religion the faith traditions in the world have not supported this point of view we believe that all the faith traditions have said that human beings out of all creation, um, I mean, the Bible says that man was created in God's image. So what that means is that our faces are a reflection of the of the nature of God and that these qualities of um, trustworthiness and generosity are divine qualities mirrored in the human spirit. Mm-hmm. So the the project really attempts to draw upon science and psychology and to integrate it with these faith traditions that about and we attempt to really offer a position that mental illness is in some respects biological but it is also in some respects derived from an a misunderstanding of human nature and human value mm. and we have developed a tool, something that we call the virtuous cycle, which is really just a six-step sort of decision-making tree to help people think through uh, decisions that have moral implications. And um, when we have done this seminar and people have kind of dropped in, I've had this happen a couple of times, where uh, people are going to practice using the virtuous cycle, and some, we say, okay, we need a volunteer to answer the questions. And somebody will sort of volunteer, and you can tell, you know, that they don't, they don't think that this is going to be very useful. And one of the participants who did that was a, a fellow who um, he had some challenges related to a son. And when he walked through the process, he came through to me later, and he said. I never expected that I would find an answer to a problem I had struggled with for 25 years in 20 minutes of practicing the virtuous cycle. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Because he hadn't been systematic in asking the question, what is the most noble response I can make to this situation? Mm -hmm. And what are the... The the six-step really questions are, where am I? Mm Why am I where I am? Where would I rather be? Uh, What plan will take me to where I want to be? 
what obstacles am I likely to encounter if I try to implement that plan? And then the implementation of the plan, which of course takes you then back to the first question mm-hmm. again, right. which is where am I now? And uh, it's a simple, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we claim that this is rocket science, but it has been profoundly helpful to mm-hmm. the people who utilized it. Mm-hmm. The next step for you all is to try to get this into the medical community or the mm-hmm. and to publish some materials that mm-hmm. will make it more accessible mm-hmm. to is there <clears throat> if folks are interested in the authenticity project is there a place they can go or they should email me and I'll that's let them probably know a or, good okay. idea <laughs> all right no problem that's probably okay. a good idea uh, all right so is that pretty much your plans for the future is between your therapy uh, business and uh, yes, I an think, authenticity project. Yeah, yeah. I think that my writing has been focused mostly on mm-hmm. these ideas because mm-hmm. I've seen them so useful to the mm. clients that I see. That mm. And, and f- all too frequently people say, is this written down anywhere? Mm. And I say, well, actually, yes. Uh, so it's now a matter of editing this document and publishing it, and mm. then there will be something that people can look at. <laughs> very good. Well, Mary Kay, thank you very much for sharing that it's with us. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Kay Radpour, a Baha'i from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who is a licensed clinical social worker. If you want information about the Authenticity Project, you can email me your request at the website abahaiperspective.com. You can also hear past interviews there as well. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you can go to the website baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. It's my-
less an optimist When it's professional to be a pessimist From what's in 75% of what we read here in you Well, I used to have a friend named Minnie Ripperton Who used to always sing when she was living Like fine wine and like seeing the glass of life is half full and half empty I'm not saying sometimes life can be rough But never to the point of me saying I've had enough As long as my heart beats I'm giving up That's why I say every day Yeah, yeah, yeah American, what do I see for tomorrow in the human plan? Is it possible for all people of the world to coexist? I say unity is only as big as our vision, and it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's much guidance through the ills of society that stand in our way. So if the road is to harmony, be with the call. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride at all. Cause the world vision I see is the one we for everybody. Oh, time 
Tu vies Fears we will die You can make the mountains ring Or make the angels cry Though the bird is on the wing And you may not know Oh 
much confusion All wrapped up in our own illusions When will there be a time to love? We have time to congregation Time for oil excavation Hatred, violence and terrorism Tell me 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.